Thank you very much indeed, uh, Roger, for those tremendously kind words. Uh, it's lovely to be here in the Knickerbocker, where I have um, stayed, where I stay whenever I'm uh, on my own in, uh, in New York. It's uh, elegant and noble and elitist in the very best sense of, uh, of that word, as is, of course, the new criterion. Um, and although uh, those people who run the new criterion hope, I think, that it wouldn't be quite so exclusive a, uh, a magazine, um, it is really precisely the uh, magazine that should uh, be read by all um, thinking and educated people. It seems to me that, uh, I don't know if you get exactly the same feeling as I do, but when I see that yellow envelope of exactly the right thickness come through the, uh, the letterbox, my heart leaps. And it's, uh, and it's rare that, uh, that that happens, owing to the fact that in Britain, tax demands come in much the same uh, shape <laughs> of, uh, of, of envelopes. Um, I'd like to take uh, you back to that uh, period between the 7th of December 1941 and the death of uh, Roosevelt in uh, April 1945, and to look at, as my book, um, my book does, the way in which the Western Allies created grand strategy, the arguments that they have, sometimes uh, tough and, and, and aggressive arguments, understandably so, owing to the fact that tens, perhaps thousands, or tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people's lives were at stake due to the decisions that these men were taking. And to look at it through the prism of the interrelationship between uh, Churchill, Roosevelt, General Marshall, and uh, Lord Allenbrook, each of them in complete control of their own hinterlands. Uh, Roosevelt dominated his administration, Winston Churchill certainly his war cabinet. Um, he was never overruled on a strategic uh, uh, point of view by the War Cabinet. He was overruled a number of times on minor things, um, even though he would, uh, he would um, shout and uh, on occasion burst into tears. Uh, he, was, uh, he was never overruled on strategic issues. Within the uh, British Chiefs of Staff, General Sir Alan Brooke, the uh, Chief of the Imperial General Staff from December 1941 and then later the Chairman of the um, British Chiefs, was a primus inter pares who was able to uh, win all the debates, all the great debates on the uh, Chiefs of Staff Committee. It helped in a sense that uh, the Naval Commander Admiral Pound very often fell asleep uh, during these uh, meetings, but nonetheless, he was a uh, the presiding brain. And in the U.S. Joint Chiefs, uh, General uh, George um, Catlett Marshall, a uh, it seems to me um, wildly underestimated figure in the history of the Second World War, a man who was rightly by Winston Churchill um, uh, described as the organizer of victory somebody who was able to bring your American armies from a mere 200,000 men in, uh, in September 1939 through to the force of 14.9 million men in uniform, uh, men and women in uniform by the uh, time of the um, victory over Japan. This astonishing explosion of, um, of, of effort and energy and uh, 
and uh, financial commitment and every other kind of, uh, of commitment, which was overall organized by uh, General Marshall. And he somehow dominated a um, committee, which even though he was not the chairman of it, that was Admiral Levy, and which had on it the extremely tough and rebarbative uh, figure of uh, Ernest J. King, and sometimes he would bang the table uh, in order to try to keep uh, Admiral King in order. Um, these four men, therefore, each of them knew that they had the uh, right way, that they understood the correct way of winning the um, Second World War. Of course, all of them, other than FDR, had studied strategy at Sandhurst or at VMI. They, uh, they, they were uh, established strategists. Um, FDR wasn't, although he did have a, uh, a, a deep reading in the words of um, Alfred Thayer Mann. Nonetheless, when each of them were together on the ten occasions that they were together in the Second World War, they felt that they knew how to do it and they had to get at least two others on their side um, in order to try to get their view of the strategy through. And when one looks at why it was that despite being attacked in the Pacific, America first of all chose the um, Germany first policy by which they were going to uh, defeat the Germans and then move on to the Japanese. And then after that, they were going to be able to um, adopt the North Africa, um, Sicily, Italy, and then Northwest Europe route, a counterintuitive route when one thinks about it uh, geographically or in many other ways. Nonetheless, it comes down again and again to the results of the arguments between these, uh, between these four men on these ten occasions. And, as I mentioned earlier, some of these occasions were pretty brutal. Um, the, there, were, um, there, there was one moment where the Anglophobe General um, Albert Wedemeyer said he wanted to lean across and sock Brooke in the jaw um, over a particular um, argument. There was another time when, uh, um, actually on a regular basis, Brooke would sit with his nose only inches away from uh, Winston Churchill down in the cabinet war rooms, which I think many of you have uh, visited in, uh, in London, yes, and uh, would break pencils in half saying, no, I completely disagree with you, Prime Minister. Must be very off-putting, somebody breaking a pencil in your face. But uh, nonetheless, these debates were, as the British historian Ronald Lewin uh, said, uh, it's, it's all very well... Um, there's no rule of law that says that men must die on a battlefield and staff officers shouldn't be vexed. Well, they were vexed. They were vexed on a regular basis and uh, these, um, these debates um, form the basis of my book. And um, the wonderful thing was that although, of course, they were very tough and aggressive and argumentative um, moments, the ability of certain people, uh, primarily Winston Churchill and to a lesser extent the other three, to use humour and charm and charisma to, uh, to take the pain out of some of these, uh, these arguments and to turn them back onto the uh, charming level that, uh, that they, all of them would prefer it to have been on, um, was uh, used on a very regular basis. There's a marvellous story of the time that uh, Anthony Eden, the British Foreign Secretary, got in touch with um, uh, Churchill uh, and, uh, and said to him, um, I'm about to go to Turkey and I need to know 
um, what to what to tell Turkey. They were desperate to try to uh, get Turkey into the war. This was in November 1943. Not, by the way, a very successful um, British uh, operation, owing to the fact that Turkey didn't declare a war on Nazi Germany until mid-March 1945. Um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, nonetheless um, and this is, uh, as I repeat, uh, November 1943, Winston Churchill replied to Anthony, tell Turkey that Christmas is coming. <laughs> there, uh, there was another great um, moment on the, uh, at the Octagon con uh, Conference in uh, 1943 when they were trying to work out why um, it was that uh, the, uh, that the uh, invasion of, um, of Normandy was going to be so difficult. And the arguments... Um, raged and uh, Marshall and Brooke agreed that the best thing to do was to get all of the other people out of the room and just the six uh, staff officers were going to, uh, sorry, chiefs of staff were going to argue it through. And uh, this was in the Salon Rosé at the Chateau Fontenac in, uh, in Quebec, a room almost exactly the same um, size as this one. And so the 60 people that had been sitting in the room uh, on either side were all told to leave, and, uh, and they argued it through. People outside hearing the, um, the... Even though the doors were shut, it was quite clear that, uh, that some pretty um, uh, serious uh, um, disagreement was taking place. At the end of it, uh, Lord Mountbatten had a, um, a couple of enormous blocks of ice brought into the room and he took out his revolver and he uh, wanted to show the rest <coughs> of the chiefs of staff how if they lassoed a iceberg from the Arctic and brought it down just off the coast of Normandy, they would be able to use it as a giant aircraft carrier and therefore not have to use uh, the Mulberry Harbours that, of course, were actually used in the real thing. In order to do this, to pull this off, they were going to use something called pikecrete, which was an invention of a British inventor called Geoffrey Pike, a combination of, wool, of uh, wood pulp and, um, and the ice. And in order to prove how wonderful pikecrete was, Mountbatten took out his revolver and fired first into the block of pure ice, which of course disintegrated immediately, <coughs> proving therefore that the Luftwaffe would be able to smash a, uh, a normal iceberg uh, in a moment with a single uh, bomb. Then he fired at the pikecrete, and in the words of uh, Alan Brooks' diary, the bullets flew around the room like an angry bee. <laughs> Quite what he would have um, was thinking of, attempting to demonstrate the uh, the ricochet abilities of uh, Pikecrete in front in, in a room just containing chiefs of staff and uh, the leading decision makers of uh, the British and American armies, uh, navies, and air force in the Second World War is anyone's guess. But outside the room, one of the uh, staff officers uh, who had been told to leave earlier said, oh, my God, they're shooting at each other. Now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in the course of uh, writing this book, I have been uh, reminded again and again how important it is to uh, concentrate on and only really to trust not the memories of, uh, of people six or seven or eight years after the event, um, but instead the um, documentary evidence, the contemporaneous documentary evidence that is uh, used, um, is taken at the time. 
Um, something that uh, Mrs. Pelosi might uh, remind herself of. <coughs> and in the course of uh, writing this book, I've used something like 80 uh, diaries um, of, uh, of various uh, key figures. And I was incredibly fortunate to discover the verbatim accounts of uh, Winston Churchill's war cabinets, which had never been seen before. It was uh, six... 30 that my, uh, in the evening that my uh, train was going to leave um, um, Churchill College in Cambridge and uh, I called down some papers simply because I hadn't heard of um, the man who had uh, left them to, or his executors had left them to, uh, to the college. Um, it, I'd love to pretend that it was archival genius. Uh, it wasn't, in fact, it was pure serendipity that uh, allowed me to come across the uh, what turned out after I'd worked out the acronyms and the shorthand and the rather bad handwriting and uh, all the various other hieroglyphics that I came across, that what these were were in fact nothing less than the verbatim accounts of Winston Churchill's war cabinet between um, 1940 and 1945, what every single cabinet minister said, including uh, Churchill himself. So there are, and it forms, as you can imagine, the, um, the centrepiece of this book. Um, it uh, it does change the historical record in some uh, uh, in several important um, aspects. I have to admit, though, that uh, my first feeling on uh, realizing what these were was not the um, the um, splendid one that I had somehow contributed to the sum of human knowledge, so much as the entirely ignoble one that I hoped that nobody else would come across them before I published my book. <laughs> um, nonetheless, um, what this, uh, what well, this and other um, uh, studies that I uh, undertook in these uh, three years of researching this book led me to feel, and I'm very happy in the course of questions and answers to talk about um, the battles of Anzio and Kazarine Pass and Caen, the Ardennes offensive, and all of that. But I'm very conscious of the fact that you're eating. Um, and therefore, um, we can go into that uh, later. But the two great messages that came from the writing of this, uh, of this book were, firstly, that it seems to me that the open, democratic, um, tough, but nonetheless honest system whereby um, sets of, of men, Americans and Britons, in, um, who, uh, who trusted and respected one another, coming together in open argument, sometimes aggressive argument, but nonetheless proper um, debate, was a far superior system, this um, victory by committee effectively, far superior system than the way in which the Axis powers were um, contemporaneously attempting to come to their, um, their decision-making. When the Fuhrer would listen, admittedly, to, to uh, great strategic brains, like Manstein or Guderian <coughs> or Rommel or Mantoffel, but who would not actually finally listen to them to the extent that he would ever change his mind, that he would refuse to accept withdrawals, that he would um, uh, organize vast armies to fight battles in impossible situations. That would never be allowed to happen because of the open and democratic uh, debate that was taking place under the security implications, <coughs> of course, between these men who did not sack each other, uh, did not, um, did not uh, um, pull rank 
they just believed in the quality of their arguments. That was the first thing. The second thing, that, uh, and last, and I'd like to, uh, to finish off, the other uh, really important aspect, it seemed to me, of the way in which these four giants, they are giants, each of them tremendously um, uh, hard-working, capable figures, intelligent, uh, under, working under pressure that the rest of us could never imagine, with lives at stake on the, every decision that they took over a war that was 2,174 days in the, uh, in the fighting. Um, these men, even though privately they had doubts, of course they did. They didn't know that victory was going to be won. Uh, they had uh, no more um, idea because the, all of this was in the future. And yet, when they did express their doubts, they were to their diaries or to their uh, wives or just to themselves. They showed in public an absolute certainty of victory, which is something, it seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, which exemplifies the very quintessence of leadership. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Andrew. Um, uh, we'd be delighted to have you answer a few questions. I'd like to just begin, if I may, by um, asking you to elaborate a little more, if you might, on the importance of these verbatim transcripts, why um, they are so uh, unusual, and, and what we were relying on before. I'm, I'm not sure that um, people who have not yet had the advantage of reading your book will understand <coughs> quite um, how distinctive and rare uh, they are, and, and, and how unusual it is that they even came down to us at all. Thank you, yes. Um, the, uh, the fact was that the practice in uh, the British cabinet, war cabinet, was to put out at the end of cabinet meetings an incredibly opaque document that told you next to nothing about what had genuinely been said. This was the best way to protect the backs of all the ministers involved. So they would not even say who had taken part in the discussions. They would just give you a sense of what the cabinet agreed to. You can go to the cab to the uh, to the papers, war cabinet papers in uh, in queue, and they would say a lively discussion took place, uh, and it was agreed that A, B, and C um, uh, was uh, was the sort of final conclusions. What Lawrence um, Burgess did was to take down what every single person said. And then, once he had got these into a, uh, the, the condensed, completely uninformative um, uh, condition, um, what he should have done, what his, what his uh, orders were to do, was to send them off and, uh, to, sorry, to take them to the grate in the War Cabinet Office and burn them. What he actually did was to take them home. He would have been arrested under the uh, official Se 1911 Official Secrets Act if anybody had known he was doing this. But nonetheless, it's completely illegal and wonderfully helpful for historians, as you can imagine. Winston Churchill, in uh, May 1940, when Britain was likely to be invaded, was under daily terror of invasion, uh, put out a... Um, a a rule, a regulation, which stated that nobody at all was going was to keep a diary. And uh, in fact, um, not only was his own it, the fear was that if the Germans had invaded, Goebbels would have been able to have used these diaries. Tremendous 
propaganda effect. <coughs> and um, instead, what happened was, uh, because everybody knew that this was a great world historical struggle and that we would still be talking about what they were doing 70 years hence, which is exactly what I'm uh, doing now, um, the, um, the Prime Minister's own private secretary, Jock Colville, kept a very famous and, and wonderful diary. The Foreign Secretary, who I mentioned, Anthony Eden, kept a diary. His private secretary kept a diary. The Permanent Undersecretary at the Foreign Office kept a diary. The King's <laughs> private secretary kept a diary. The King himself kept a diary. Um, and uh, so I have no fewer than 80 diaries that were um, invaluable. And uh, in, in America, Admiral Leahy, the chief of the uh, Joint Chiefs, uh, kept a diary. Although, of course, he wasn't under Winston Churchill's regulation, and you weren't about to get invaded in this country. It was uh, much more understandable for the Americans to keep diaries and thank God everybody did because it does mean that you are able to put um, to, to, to get a real sense of the day-to-day -day, um, movements and these tectonic plates shifting suddenly when um, FDR, who uh, knew the least about grand strategy of the four, and nonetheless had the most influence because when he finally moved away from Brooke and Churchill's stance that um, the Northwest Europe shouldn't be invaded until the last possible moment, and supported Marshall's stance, which was to try and cross the channel as soon as possible, you actually got Operation Overlord on the day that you did. Thomas. What would have happened? If we had delayed D-Day for a period of time to let the Nazis and Stalin kill each other, or alternatively, or in conjunction therewith, let Patton take Berlin. Well, um, on, on the first, um, on the first. Uh, prognostication. Of course, Stalin and Hitler did, um, although not personally, kill each other. Three million um, troops of the Wehrmacht were uh, killed on the Eastern Front. And it's very important to remember, I think, the most important statistic of the Second World War, the central statistic of the Second World War, was that of, the, of every five Germans killed in combat, by which I don't mean bombed from the air, I mean actually killed on a battlefield, four died on the Eastern Front. So there's, to an extent, the, what um, Churchill and Ellenbrook, Marshall and um, Roosevelt were talking about in these great debates actually was only really uh, responsible for the killing of 20% of the, uh, of the um, German armed forces. The rest were, were being killed by Stalin. Had we not um, landed in June 1944, there would have been absolutely no organised force to prevent the Red Army from coming the right the way across the European continent. And when one looks at the way that they held down um, Poland and, Euro and uh, Eastern Europe, um, Hungary and the rest, um, one can imagine what they would also have done in Germany and France Belgium and Holland. We would have had a uh, Red Navy in the, um, in the Channel ports, which would eventually, by the 1950s or 60s, been just as dangerous to uh, British integrity and sovereignty as the Nazis ever were in the 1940s. Your second question, and everybody asks two questions and one always forgets the second one, was, <coughs> sorry? Patton taking Berlin. Patton, yes. Patton, Pat, uh, there was simply no way that Patton was going to be able to take Berlin for the simple reason that the li lines of demarcation were agreed at Yalta. 
um, between the uh, 7th and the 13th of February 1945, the time that the Red Army was only 60 miles away from, um, from Berlin. And, the, um, and they were not sort of pencil marks on the map, they were agreed, understood um, lines of demarcation. And by the way, when uh, the Zhukov and Konyev took uh, Berlin, they suffered something like 720,000 casualties doing it. The Russians uh, were um, bled yet again, even after the destruction of Army Group Centre in the July and August of 1944, bled terribly. We could well, and you uh, as Americans, could well have lost as many men taking Berlin as uh, you had lost up until that point in the Second World War. <coughs> Perfectly um, understandable um, uh, desire politically to have uh, liberated the city, to have been the first one there. But the cost would have been enormous. Eisenhower and Marshall didn't want to do it, partly for that reason, and we had agreed not to do it and uh, put our, um, our hands to that uh, treaty. So it's a, um, a, a post-war uh, fantasy rather than anything that could possibly have uh, taken place at that time. Sir? Uh, what was the process for establishing the agenda for these meetings? Um, that's a very good question. The um, meetings were, um, the agenda was fought over almost as toughly as the meetings themselves once, the, um, once they had taken place. They were uh, organised, as you can imagine, on a lower level by the staffs, uh, by the planning staffs. The uh, Pentagon planning staff, men like uh, Generals uh, Hull and Handy, were um, up against the uh, British planning staffs, um, men like Generals uh, Jacob and um, Brigadier Dykes, who later died in a plane crash. These guys um, would, um, especially at the combined Chiefs of Staff um, in Washington, uh, where Dill and Marshall, who fortunately were tremendous, tremendous friends, genuine friends, um, <coughs> before Dill's uh, death in uh, November 1944, uh, these guys would um, thrash out the agenda, particularly what order things were going to be argued in. And uh, I go into it in some detail in my book in that um, if you have already agreed on the uh, capture of um, Rabaul, for example, the, the, the um, uh, Japanese island, or at least the, uh, the Pacific island that the Japanese held, you would, and that had been agreed, and further down the agenda, you would not have enough troops and landing craft necessary to take the Andaman Islands, for example. And so everybody knew this, and as a result, <coughs> you fought over the agenda pretty much as much as you uh, fought over the arguments later on. Madam? There was no guarantees that we were going to win at D-Day. If we had failed, could America have mustered the political will to keep on fighting against Germany? Um, that's a very good question as well. Uh, I mean, what ifs obviously are uh, are the most fascinating uh, part of it, not least because you can't be proved wrong. Um, I think that uh, yes, the um, I mean, it slightly depends on how many men were lost there. Uh, there were four, uh, forty-eight 
the whole of Operation Overlord was a 48 divisional attack. I mean, it was a massive operation, of course. But uh, men weren't going to be, after D plus six, men weren't going to be um, put into the attack unless the bridgeheads had been, um, had been secured. And by D plus six, it would have been clear whether or not they would have been uh, secured. So had the worst come to the worst, it would have been a five divisional loss. Still, the most terrible bloody nose, but not something that would have involved hundreds of millions, uh, sorry, um, millions of men, milli, milli, 50 to 60,000 men. Uh, and even though the uh, beaches were difficult to uh, bring men back off, I mean, it would have been another Dunkirk, effectively. The big difference would have been that, unlike at Dunkirk, we had total air superiority. Mm -hmm. uh, on the day of D-Day itself, the Allies undertook 13,188 sorties against the Luftwaffe's 318. And so um, it was, in that sense, going to be easier to, uh, to bring the troops back. However, politically, and in many other ways, it would have been the most terrible um, uh, disaster. There are some historians that argue that we wouldn't have been able to have returned to the um, Northwest European theatre in 1944, of course, but also probably not also 1945. And that in itself would have meant that um, the appalling decision would have had to have been taken <coughs> as to whether or not to employ the nuclear bomb on German cities. Sir? You mentioned earlier that uh, there was a uh, strategy uh, clash. The Americans wanted to invade early <coughs> Northwest Europe, and the British did. Did the uh, Americans ever acknowledge? with hindsight that uh, it would have been a disaster to go early? And then did, did Churchill ever acknowledge that he, he might have been wrong about the Balkans, the Balkans or even Italy? Um, again, very good question. Uh, the answer is no. People don't, by and large, acknowledge uh, their uh, mistakes, especially not politicians, as, uh, as we know. Um, but um, no, they. they the, the, the great debate continues. There are some American historians that will argue that actually a massive early Clausewitzian uh, clash in uh, Northwest Europe in uh, the autumn of 1942 would have been superior to the very, very roundabout route of um, Casablanca and Catania and uh, Rome and uh, and the Po Valley, you know, this and, and certainly uh, landing 400,000 troops in Operation um, Anvil in uh, Toulon and Marseille, 500 miles south of uh, of Paris, three months after the D-Day. You know, these are these are great debates which will go on, as your historian Kent Greenfield said, yeah. as long as. Uh, as the men continue to debate the, uh, the strategy of World War II, which was his quotation. And what, uh, but it seems to me a, uh, uh, um, the wrong, it seems to me a dichotomy here, because we would not have, um, rather like Waterloo, the Battle of Waterloo, when people ask, um, would Wellington have won without the Prussians? <coughs> the fact is that Wellington wouldn't have fought unless he knew that Blücher was going to be turning up on the battlefield. You, it is possible to believe that, um, as I do, that uh, Brooke and Churchill and Roosevelt were right not to have um, 
landed on the um, uh, to, to have crossed the Channel before the 6th of June 1944, but that Marshall and Roosevelt were also right to have insisted on that attack taking place then. Sir? Uh, in the Herculean effort to get the two sides to cooperate during this period, was there any evidence that you came upon that suggested that the traditional American reluctance to underwrite or defend the British Empire, as opposed to the immediate threat, was a divisive issue of any consequence? Yes, it was a very, um, very uh, divisive I issue. Um, the, for some reason, the um, American um, uh, planners, men like Harlan Handy, to a much lesser degree, um, Eisenhower, but, uh, but serious figures in the Pentagon from 1943 onwards believed that the uh, British saw the Eastern Mediterranean as a, um, as a uh, essential part of the um, of British lines of communication to, uh, to India. Um, there's absolutely no indication this is the case, in fact, uh, that the, uh, our attempts to try to um, uh, to have the Americans support us in attempts to uh, to free up um, uh, the um, Adriatic were nothing to do with the British Empire at all. They were to do with uh, Churchill's belief that you could uh, liberate Eastern Europe before the Red Army got there um, through the Ljubljana Gap, uh, which was not the uh, the sort of soft underbelly as he uh, as he projected it, but in fact an extremely tough place to fight, 200 miles of, uh, of um, small, thin valleys with very high um, mountains on either side, which could be um, held up by the, by the Germans almost um, forever, rather like the Apennines were, for so long in, uh, in Italy. When the historian, um, the military historian Sir Michael Howard, Professor Sir Michael Howard, a friend of mine, was uh, uh, talking to the German general von Sanger and Utterlen, who was in charge of uh, the defense of Monte Cassino after the war. Um, he, uh, they were talking about the Italian campaign, and uh, von Sanger said, next time you want to uh, invade Italy, don't start at the bottom. Um, it's a particular type of shorthand, Neil. It's one of those um, ones where you have um, you have one SL, for example, will stand for First Sea Lord, um, and um, and um, everyone's will have initials MOP, Minister of Production. So it, wasn't like so shorthand. it wasn't Pittman's shorthand. No, it was his own uh, kind of, uh, of shorthand, and S. HD is should, those kind of WD is would, those kind of things are the, uh, are the way that, uh, it, but if you also add that onto um, a, uh, a pretty ropey handwriting and, um, and lots of, I mean everything is acronyms of course as well, um, and you um, have it in paper that just it seems in these in these uh, in these thick documents, hundreds of pa pages of it, that um, just look entirely un. They don't they don't have anything to them that will imply to you that uh, 
that they're important in any way, um, then I can understand why, for 35 years, historians, because um, he's such a minor figure, have instead gone for the 5,000 um, boxes that Winston Churchill uh, deposited there, many thousands of other boxes that many of the people around him, Ernest Bevin, Clement Attlee, these guys have all also given all their papers to Churchill College. And so, of course, historians are going to go for the big ones. And I wouldn't have gone for the really small, minor figure had I had not much more time there. I only did it because my train was leaving at half past six, and I had, a, you know, <coughs> an hour to go. Pure luck. Sir? I, I wanted to ask, uh, have the Germans drawn up plans to actually invade the British Islands? Mm. Yeah, you can read them. They're hilarious. <laughs> um, they would. And what, what, what would the, uh, the British have done if uh, the Germans successfully invaded uh, the British Islands? Well, um, yes, the, uh, it, it was uh, called Operation Sea Lion, and, um, and they've been published. There were big arguments between the Navy. Um, Admiral Rader wanted to attack on a really wide front of 200 miles from Rye to, to Eastbourne. Um, General von Brauchitz, who was going to be in charge, the, the Wehrmacht uh, later field marshal, wanted to attack on a much smaller 50 mile um, uh, radius uh, based on Portsmouth and just push straight through to, uh, to London. Um, the, uh, when I said hilarious, I mean, that isn't hilarious at all. That's totally terrifying, as you can imagine from Britain. But what is hilarious are the people that they were going to arrest. Um, uh, they, they set up this list of, um, of uh, 3,100 Britons who they were going to arrest with their names and, and addresses. They put Winston Churchill's country address as though he was going to just be there uh, on the day they had it. Um, and uh, they, uh, they had several people, uh, some people like uh, Sigmund Freud, who'd already come here, um, others like Aldous Huxley, again, who'd already come here, some people who'd already died. Um, and um, when the list was published, one of the members on it, Rebecca West, the British journalist uh, Rebecca West, um, telegraphed uh, another person who appeared on it, Noel Coward, to say, uh, my dear, the people we should have been seen dead with. Um, what, uh, what wouldn't have been so hilarious is if they actually genuinely had uh, carried out a successful invasion. That, uh, under Brauchitz's um, uh, plans, would have meant every able-bodied man between the ages of 18 and 45 being shipped off the island into the islands, in, back to Germany to work, rather like the French army was at the time, in German uh, factories to prepare for the, uh, for the war against, uh, against Russia and subsequently, of course, against you. And so we would have had, the entire country would have been denuded of, uh, of people who were able to fight back. Um, some organizations, including the Boy Scouts, were going to be, I mean, the Freemasons, as you'd expect, the trade unions, as you'd expect, all the various traditional enemies of the Nazis would have been, um, would have been crushed. The Boy Scouts organization was also down for, um, uh, for being um, closed down and its leaders arrested and the rest. Concentration camps were going to be set up. They are, there's a lot of, um, and I'm afraid they would probably have also have found enough black shirts and fascists to, uh, to, to start the Holocaust. I mean, we know that uh, Ireland, which of course was a neutral country, had its tiny number of Jews, only 4,000, listed 
as um, being uh, as being on the list that Heydrich um, drew up at the Van Zee conference for extermination once the uh, once the Germans had uh, had landed here. So there was a a proper we would have been treated probably a bit better than Poland and probably much the same as uh, as France. Um, Hitler had no racial. Uh, hatred towards his fellow Aryan um, uh, Britons, but at the same time, if we carried on resistance, uh, which there were very strong plans to do, and one can look at the um, at the uh, called the auxiliary units, people who would have gone into villages and towns to have continued the resistance, then the reprisals against them would have been as bad as they were in the uh, Eastern Front. Uh, and this would have uh, probably created a great deal of resentment on behalf of the um, local populations against the resistors as well, in the same way that happened in, uh, in, uh, in Poland and France and many other places, Ukraine as of course, and uh, would have led to a kind of civil war in the same way that, uh, that you um, saw across the rest of Europe. Um, the call to resist was made, the call to, to arms, to join the Home Guard, was made on the uh, 15th of May 1940 by Anthony Eden going on the radio and uh, asking for able-bodied uh, men who were not already in the army to join the Home Guard, local defence volunteers as they were called. And by the end of his 40-minute speech, i.e. in that 40 minutes, Already, 1.15 million Britons had queued up at post offices and police stations around the country to, to join up. They just, the minute they heard it, uh, they uh, stopped whatever they were doing in order to, um, to, to join up to, to defend the country. So I believe, sorry, I'm getting my little room. It's a very <coughs> affecting uh, statistic from a small country that already had got... Uh, uh, many people already uh, uh, in uniform at that stage. And these were guys who'd first fought in the First World War, who had fought some of them in the Boer War. Uh, and, uh, and they brought their, um, you know, their rusty old uh, bayonets uh, along to, uh, to do it. Farmers brought their um, founding pieces and their, their, their red, um, rifles and, and the rest. And so, and Churchill, we know, was going to broadcast on the day that the Germans landed and say, um, you can always take one with you, which was going to be the cry, you know. And so when the Germans, yes, their uh, armoured um, armored columns were going to be able to break through and uh, probably London would have fallen. But if the British people had continued to resist in the same way that the Russians did, and uh, I believe as a Briton, that we would have done that because we were a um, homogenous, politically homogenous nation in the same way that the French weren't. That we hadn't got the sort of Dreyfus um, um, background to us. We hadn't got the, uh, the hatred of each other that the French had at the time. We hadn't <coughs> got very strong communist and fascist um, uh, groupings. We had some, but it wasn't, they, they never won a, a political seat, for example. In the uh, in the House of Commons, in the same way that they had in the Assemblée Nationale, and I therefore believe, and I have to believe really because I'm a British patriot, that uh, we would have um, we would have fought in a way that um, that many other countries did not. Jim, you want to have one more question?
I was just going to say, Andrew, thank, thanks very much. I, Eisenhower was a military figure who emerged from World War II with the highest profile and went on to a political career. Uh, could you say something as to why Marshall was passed over for Operation Overlord and why it was that Eisenhower emerged in the way that he did? Um, yes, well, again, very good uh, question. He, I mean, the, the, the short answer is he wasn't passed over. He um, had it for the taking if he wanted it, rather like uh, earlier um, uh, Alan Brooke could have been the commander of the uh, British forces in the Western Desert, um, but it eventually went to Montgomery, that uh, job, because he also turned it down. Effectively, these guys realised that although they would have loved to have been successful generals, uh, that they would love to have had the, uh, the boulevards named after them and the statues put up to them and, uh, and the rest in the same way as happens to Eisenhower and, uh, and Montgomery, their duty was to keep the politicians in line. Their duty as the uh, military commanders was to ensure that the political masters um, did the right thing and took the right decisions. And Marshall's relationship, a very strange relationship that he has with FDR, which I go into in some detail <coughs> in this book, uh, I mean, he didn't um, allow uh, FDR, even though he was president, to call him George. And he never visited Hyde Park until Roosevelt's funeral. Uh, he didn't want to be part of the uh, of the gang, the Roosevelt set, the, uh, the, the, the bunch of... Uh, of um, cronies that, uh, that Roosevelt had around him at all. He kept himself completely uh, separate from that. And so he, um, was a, uh, he was a giant of a man who, even though he knew whoever was the supreme allied commander of uh, forces in Western Europe would be um, the, uh, the, you know, effectively the greatest allied soldier of the Second World War, he turned down the opportunity for that to be him because he put his duty, his sense of duty, before his own personal ambition. And uh, he was ill repaid by um, Eisenhower, who in 1952, in um, the race for the uh, presidency, um, refused to stand by him when he was attacked by Senator McCarthy. And um, although I don't go into it in great detail, I, I uh, allude to this, uh, this thing. Uh, he was um, a, uh, a very, very remarkable man, and you um, Americans are tremendously fortunate to have had him as your U.S. Chief of Staff during the first day when he, w when he took his oath was on the same day that Adolf Hitler um, unleashed Blitzkrieg in Poland, and he saw the war right the way through to the end. Thank you very much indeed.